Okay, so last week we talked about the innermost cave, the dark night of the soul. Now we're at the ordeal. So as we picked up last week, we saw Jesus in the garden. He's praying. And now let's pick up from Mark. He says, just as he was speaking, one of the twelve appeared. With them was a crowded, a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once at Jesus, Jesus said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. You have to, like, love Mark's agenda. Like, he does a couple things in this text that are already hilarious. You know, like, have you ever started telling an embarrassing story about a friend? And maybe the friend is, like, in company, or you realize that people know this. So you, like, change the name, or you don't mention the name. And you're like, but you really want to tell this hilarious story that just happened? Like, Mark's doing this. Like, scholars think that this, this guy is Luke. So Mark, as we mentioned, is some people think that Mark is the first gospel that was written. And some people even think that like Matthew and Luke both had a copy of Mark when they were writing their copy. And I can just see like Luke like reading Mark's copy and then be like, hey, wait a minute. You know, like he gets to this part. He's like, that's me. How dare he? Like for all of history, here I am naked. And then he also does something very interesting with Judas. He doesn't say his name. You think about this. If you've ever been broken up with, with by someone, uh, a lot of times you refer to him as your ex. Because if you name them, it humanizes them. You're like, it makes them a real person. And Mark is like the betrayer. He doesn't have a name. He gets a title. It's like we won't even mention him by name. And there's some cool things, too, that happen with Judas that we might or might not get to. But a little backstory about Rome. Sometimes we, uh, we read this context, and I even do this with the movie clips. I'll show you a clip of a movie, and you might not have seen the movie. And you're watching this clip and thinking, like, why is this happening? What is going on? So I wanted to tell you about the world that Jesus was born into, what was going on. Uh, Rome wasn't the superpower the way America was. Rome was a superpower in the way that it was all that existed, was Rome. And before then, it was the Greeks. Before that, it was the Babylonians. The Jewish people had been in exile and slavery for most of their history. From the time they left Exodus, from the time after they had the Passover, they would have brief moments of peace followed by war, brief moments of peace. If you read the book of Judges, it shows just like the circle of violence. Like every judge ends with, and they had peace for a time, and then enslavement occurred again, or violence occurred again. And the Romans were brutal. They just perfected ways to kill people. Um, For instance, Herod Antipas, there's a city called Sephorus, and he built the city on the back of slaves, on the back of... uh, the common people. Some scholars believe that Joseph and Jesus possibly could have worked on this project as carpenters. Uh, so they grew up in this like system. Um, one of the most uh, horrible things was the scholar Josephus talked about in uh, the year 4 BC, there was a revolt by the Jewish people and the Romans came in and they just massacred the people, killed over 2,000 people. Josephus commented, he said this, he said, uh, Space cannot be found for the crosses, nor crosses for the bodies. 
And the Romans would just like explore and play with how they could crucify people. Like it became a game. They're like, have we tried crucifying them this way? Can you, and they would, a lot of times the Romans would, they would line the, the, the roads into the cities with crucified people. Because there's nothing demoralizing than walking into your city and seeing like your wife or your children like crucified on the cross as you go into the city. Nothing takes the spirit out of a rebellion like seeing what happened the last time there was a rebellion. So the Jewish people were in this powder keg of emotion and they were just waiting and searching for some sort of redemption, some sort of hero. In fact, the Jewish people called this the Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah, the anointed one. It literally means to be dripped upon because they would take oil and drip it upon the king. So a couple of these words, because the gospel writers, especially Mark, does some really provocative things. So we read these words and we only see the Christian terminology with them. But gospel originally started off as a proclamation from the Roman emperor of the good news of Caesar. And it was usually along the lines of Caesar has conquered and enslaved another group of people. Caesar is the son of God. Son of God was a title used for Caesar. Kingdom, Savior, Banner, Messiah. These were all terms that, would, that were used by the Romans. And so when the gospel writers are using them, they're doing something very subversive. They're taking these terms that people had always heard for the Romans, and they were changing them. They were owning them. They were using them for their own sake. So I was thinking about this. It started out with a kiss. It's like one of my favorite. <laughs> I love the killers. They're such a great band. And it seems appropriate because how does Judas betray Jesus? He walks up to him and he gives him a kiss. I was like thinking about it in the story, and uh, I don't know that we have time for it. A really great book. Check out The Fidelity of Betrayal by Peter Rollins. He explores this idea of Judas betraying Jesus, and he sees it not as an act of uh, transgression or trespass or betrayal, but an act of faith and fidelity on Judas' part. He does a midrash with the story, which is very interesting. If you've read the Harry Potter series, uh, you know that Severus Snape, like you realize later on, you're like, oh wait, he wasn't a bad guy. Like it's a big twist. Peter Rollins kind of midrashes based on the things that happened in Mark, that perhaps what Judas was doing was his part in advancing Jesus. In fact, in Mark, you see Jesus, he says, it is not until a seed dies that it gives rise to a plant. The seed must be crushed. Uh, but we'll kind of talk about that later. Or not at all. <laughs> but um, I just don't have a lot of time. But there's a couple of things. One is the apostles were surprised by Judas's betrayal. If you read the Last Supper accounts, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they don't all look at Judas. They don't all be like, uh-huh, like, I knew it. They're, they all start asking, which one? Who of us would, like, what, who's going to do it, you know? It's like that moment if you're sitting in a class and the teacher comes in with your test, like, I graded the test, um, everybody passed except one of you. And then you're like, okay, who was it? Like, who's the dumbest person in this class, you know? Like, I think, I'm like hoping, you're like, look around and stuff. So they were all surprised. And then I was just thinking about the scene where Judas walks up and he gives Jesus a kiss. And I was wondering, like, what if he whispered something to him? You know, what else happened? Was it like just a kiss? I mean, it would be so much easier if Judas was like, that's the guy. Like he just points, you know? But in fact, Judas in some way puts himself in like a, a vulnerable position. I mean, we just see that Peter is willing to kill somebody. And I've always wondered about this point too. We'll talk about, but like Peter clean, like takes the guy's ear off. And I was always wondering like if Peter was like, 
there's either, for me, two ends of the spectrum. Peter's like an excellent swordsman and he just wanted to scare them and take the ear, or he's a horrible swordsman. It was like aiming for the head and missed and got the ear. And like, but also stopped with the ear. Like, didn't get into the shoulder or anything. Like, it was just like, <sighs> like, either way though, like, he's just, what happened? <laughs> like, like, did he come like upswing? I don't know. A lot of digression. But still, you have this scene. And uh, what's interesting too is like the gospel writers are always pointing back to other things that have happened. So Mark, in some ways, the gospel writers are reminding us of Adam and Eve. And I want to see if you guys remember when Adam and Eve sin, they fall, and God talks to them about it. What does that Adam and Eve do? What is the first thing they do when God asks them about their sin? Yeah, so he asks Adam, he's like, what happened? And who does Adam throw under the bus? The woman. The woman. He's like, yeah, and once again, no, there's no, the woman. And then he even blames God. Yeah, the, the woman you gave me, if anything, this is your fault. Don't you love the audacity of the Hebrew scriptures? God, like Adam has the audacity to be like, it's your fault. You did this. And then God is like, all right, we'll come back to that. Um, Eve, and Eve is like, the serpent. You know, like it's just that, and what's going to be, and I was reading this and I was blown away. I've never noticed before. Jesus is constantly referred to as the new Adam. And one of the ways Jesus is the new Adam is throughout the entire trial of Jesus, he never gets defensive. Have you noticed that? When you start getting emotional upset, you become incredibly defensive. When people start like drilling Jesus, when they start asking him questions, he just is silent. He doesn't blame anybody. He doesn't say anything. In fact, a lot of times he'll either ask a question, be like, I was in the temple, why didn't you arrest me then? Or he says nothing, or he just agrees with it. They'll be like, didn't you say you would raise the temple in three days? And he goes, it's as you say. And they all like rip their shirts in a panic. But he doesn't get defensive. He doesn't do what the old Adam did. He's showing like a new way to humanity. He's showing this new path. And I was thinking about this idea of betrayal because betrayal only happens when it's someone that you care about. Betrayal only happens when it's somebody that you love. It's not betrayal if your enemy does it. If your enemy like stabs you, you're like, well, yeah, that's what, that's your job. And I remember in college, I was dating this girl and it, and it had come off the worst week of my life. So I had found out that I was one credit short of graduating the week before I was supposed to walk. I'd found out the job that I thought was like a, a, shoe, a shoe in for, I like did not get. Um, and then the girl I was dating, we broke up and like we had like we had we were serious we had like even talked about getting it like we we're gonna go like ring shopping and we broke up so all these things happened in in the week it's like this is the, the worst week of my life and I remember uh, one day I was like I had just gone out to the local soccer field I was like I'm just gonna just kick a soccer ball and run for hours and I mean I remember I just run and run and I was like covered in like grass and sweat and I was disgusting and I'd come home and I was gonna get a shower and my roommate was in the shower and I was just super frustrated. I was like, this day just can't get any worse. And then like, I was like, I'm just gonna go hose off, like out front. It's like, I just have to get something. So like, I open the front door and there's my ex-girlfriend like about to knock. And you know those moments where you're like, you just wanna look awesome, but you don't. You're like, I wanted to just look super cool and macho. And instead I just was like disgusting and filthy and gross. As just to validate, like you should have broken up with me. And, uh, but she was about to knock and I was like, but she was really dressed up and looked very nice. And I was like, what is happening? And then she got super weird. She was like, uh, um, I'll, I'll just come back. And then I realized you weren't here to see me. And then the light bulb went on. I was like, my roommate who was getting cleaned up, I was like, 
you're gonna go out. Like I remember like getting so mad, I was like, you're going out, aren't you? And she was like, uh, I'm, just, I'm just gonna get, get in the car. I was like, oh, I was so hurt, I was so devastated. I was like, all right, I just have to leave. I'm going back to the soccer field again. I was like, I just, and I was like, what do you do when you live with a person that is dating your ex-girlfriend? Like, I was like, what, how do you get through the situation? I remember the class I was short, one credit short for was I had to take a photography course and you had to spend a lot of time in a black room. I think I just spent the week in the black room. Like I was the only student and I just spent this week in the dark room developing photos. I was like, I can't be in my house right now. So there's this like idea that betrayal comes and everyone's surprised by it. Everyone's astonished, everyone's blown away. And then I wanted to talk about this idea. Like the, one of the lines in the Batman clip is uh, Commissioner Gordon, he says, Batman is the hero we deserve, but not the one we need. So you think about the backdrop of Rome. You think about this idea of what the Jewish people were looking for is they wanted salvation. They wanted to be free. They wanted to overthrow Rome. They were looking for, as we would say, David. If you look at the Old Testament, David was the warrior king. Like he killed Goliath. He constantly was defeated the Philistines. In fact, at one point Saul gets angry because they sing this song about David. They're like, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. You know, it's what always happens in sports. Whenever a new superstar arrives, People will be like, oh, this is the next whatever. So Sidney Crosby for the Penguins, people are like, he's the new Wayne Gretzky. And then it's always funny because like my dad's generation will be like, oh no, he's nothing like, or you'll be like, LeBron James is the new Michael Jordan. And it's always like the other generation that grew up with this guy, they'll be like, oh no, he's not. He's not. And it's like, are we going to do this? Like when we have kids, they're going to be like, this all-star. And it's like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you should have seen when LeBron James played basketball. You know, like it's always what happens. And so... The Jewish people, though, they're like, we, we want another David. We want this David. And if you look at Matthew's genealogy, he does something incredibly cool. So you read the genealogies, you're like, this is so boring. I don't care. And there's like two things you need to remember. One is most of the time, the traditions were oral, so they would talk. And one way to remember things is through repetition or saying them often. And when you would read these genealogies, you would see where you came from, and it was a big deal. But Matthew keeps doing this thing where he keeps saying 14 He's like, in this person to this person, 14. This person to this person, 14. This person to this person, 14. And you're like, why is he commenting on 14? And uh, as I was studying this, it's, it's so, I think it's so fascinating. So, as you know, like, letters have like a numerical uh, assignment. So, like, if we said our alphabet, like, A would be equal to 1, B would be equal to 2. So, the Romans did this thing, and the Jewish people, the Hebrews, would do the same thing. And uh, the Hebrews don't have vowels, it's just consonants. So if you assign like a numerical number, so then the number for D would be four, the number for V would be six, and the number for D would be four, right? So there's no vowels. So four plus six plus four equals 14. So as Matthew is writing the genealogy, he's saying 14, 14, 14. He is saying David, David, David. People are reading this and they're going, oh, you are saying this guy is going to be a new David. This guy is going to be another warrior. This guy is going to overthrow the Romans. Like you can see how excited people are. In fact, one of the theories on Judas is not that Judas is acting against Jesus. He's trying to put Jesus in a corner so Jesus will, in fact, become the David that he's expecting. 
Judas is doing the same thing that everyone else is upset about. They're like, when are you going to do the thing that you've promised to do? And then this is where Jesus has this line. He says, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come at me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scripture must be fulfilled. You can see maybe like the frustration at this point with Judas. You can see maybe the frustration with the apostles. In fact, the harshest language Jesus uses in the whole New Testament is towards Peter. When he tells Peter, I am going to be crucified, I am going to be killed, and Peter goes, no. He gets in front of him, he's like, there's no way, because that's not what a Messiah does. The hero doesn't die at the end of the story. And Jesus goes, this is what must happen. And Peter gets in his face, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Get out of my way. Like the harshest language is for his closest friend because he goes, you are missing the point about what this is all about. You don't understand. You're missing it. He didn't come to start a rebellion. He came to start something else. And there's another cool line in the Batman clip I loved. And one is, Batman realizes, he goes, the Joker cannot win. It's like, the, the Joker, he can't get away with it. And if you've seen The Dark Knight, you know that the Joker is... He's probably one of the greatest villains like in cinema of all time. Like He's terrifying. He's horrible. He's unpredictable. He's unbalanced. He's clever. He's creepy. Like He's all the things. You're like, he's terrifying. And Batman says, like, he can't win. Like, he can't get away with this. And it's the same thing Jesus says. He goes, in order for us to have a new kingdom, we have to play by different rules. And he says, and these rules no longer include violence. Because violence begets violence begets violence. There's an incredible book by a historian, Mark Kurlonsky, called Nonviolence, The History of a Dangerous Idea. And he talks about, I think it's, I want to say it's the 12, it's like 12 or 20 lessons of nonviolence. Um, and they, he says that so many of them originate from the teachings of Jesus, the idea of like turning the other cheek. You see Jesus, like Josh talked about in first service, he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have led a rebellion like this. That's what everyone wanted. Jesus could have said, like, everybody pick up your swords, let's go. And instead he's like, everybody put your swords down. And in this section, he picks up the ear and he puts it back on. What do you do with somebody like that? You know that there's also like some guilt, some hesitation in arresting somebody that is healing your soldiers. Have you thought about that? Like, at first, like, Peter cuts off the ear, and you feel validated. You're like, yep, these are the guys. They're definitely going to start a rebellion. And Jesus is like, no, we're not, Peter. Like, you know, Peter just doesn't ever listen. <laughs> He's like, stop talking. <laughs> and he picks up the ear and puts it back on. And I just wonder if the Romans, you know, the Romans are like, uh, why are we arresting this guy again? He doesn't, he's not acting like our enemy. He's not acting like our opponent. And then Batman has this awesome line in that clip. Because he says, like, I'll be, the, I'll be the villain. I'll be the bad guy. I'll be the guy you can blame. And I love that Gordon is like, that's wrong. That's not right. Like, you saved us. You're the hero. And Batman's like, I can take it. Like, Josh talked about, like, truly deep spiritual people can be in the most toxic relationships, and they're not affected by them. Like, it just doesn't, because they know they're so rooted, so grounded. Jesus is like, I can take it. Like, I don't desire it. I'm not wanting to be hurt, but I can, I can take this. Like, later the New Testament will write that Jesus, like, did not, that he overcame evil by taking on evil. Like, 
Paul will say, like, Jesus became sin so there could no longer be sin. He shows that the way, like, through this is by becoming this thing. So I wanted to show the, this because this is the thing that Mark does that's so interesting to me. Um, this is how to become the Son of God in eight easy steps. And this is from the book Jesus for President by Shane Claiborne. If you haven't read it, it's like a phenomenal book. It's so great. And it's, it's really cool, too. There's a lot of pictures and colors. Uh, you're reading it. It's just beautifully put together. Yeah, it really. It's really cool. Like I, I would love to see the original copy because there's so much like fabric and. Uh, but so this is what would happen when a, a new Caesar would be made king. It would start off where it would say the Praetorium Guard, six thousand soldiers, gathered in the Praetorium. The would-be Caesar was brought into the middle of the gathering. So if you've ever been to a sports game before, and they're like, the Predators are like flashed. Do you know like how, how many people Nissan Stadium can hold or the Somme Center? I don't know. 16,000? 60? Gosh. Man. Yeah. So like if, can you imagine like, I was thinking, I was like, maybe it's like 10. Like I apparently don't under, have any grasp on numbers. <laughs> So, but like 6,000 6, soldiers are all gathered and you bring this guy in there like chanting, you know, chanting this guy's name. So as the guards went to the temple of Jupiter, Capitolinius, got a purple robe and placed it on the candidate. The candidate was also given an olive leaf wreath made of gold and a scepter for the authority of Rome. So these are like the first two steps. Next two, Caesar was loudly acclaimed as triumphant by the Praetorian Guard. A procession began through the streets of Rome led by soldiers. In the middle was Caesar, Walking behind him was a sacrificial bull, whose death and blood would mark Caesar's entrance into the divine pantheon. Walking next to the bull was a slave who carried an axe to kill the bull. Some accounts note that some people would spread sweet-smelling incense around the procession. The procession moved to the highest hill in Rome, the Capitolian Hill, or Head Hill. On this hill is the Capitolium Temple. The candidate stood before the temple altar and was offered by the slave a bowl of wine mixed with myrrh. He took it off. He took it as if to accept and then gave it back. The slave also refused, and then the wine was poured out either onto the altar or onto the bull. Right after the wine was poured, the bull was killed. The Caesar to be gathered his second in command on his right hand and his third in command on his left. Then they ascended to the throne of the Capitolium. The crowd acclaimed the inaugurated emperor, and for the divine seal of approval, the gods would send signs such as a flock of doves or a solar eclipse. So these were the stages of what would happen when like a new, a new Caesar was brought to, to order. This is how it was done. And as I was thinking about this for class, I remember this really interesting thing that happened. And I titled this, The Agenda of Mark, or How Do You Watch Star Wars? So have you ever, anybody in here, is this going to help us hit, have you watched the movie Star Wars before? Do we watch Star Wars? Uh-huh. Okay. Bust. <laughs> okay, so when I was a youth minister, I remember I had this really interesting theory i'll just give you a little bit of backstory so star wars in crazy fashion back in the 70s george lucas released episode four i remember talking to my mom about this she saw it and she remembered seeing a theater and going what because there's this sense of you're missing something you don't start with episode four you start with episode one and so you start with it and it goes episode four and then the next movie is episode five and then episode six and then when i was a kid they made episode one and the way it worked is that george lucas was like here's this story, and then later on I'm going to tell you how all of the things that happened here came to be, which is very interesting. 
In fact, the Jewish people actually ascribe Exodus as the first book of the Bible because you read Exodus and then they go back and say, and here's how it all started. Here's how you found these people in slavery. So they do the same thing. So I was talking to a student one time because the way I think you watch Star Wars is you watch episode four, episode five, episode six, because that's the way they were released. And then you watch episode one, episode two, episode three. A lot of kids now watch episode one, episode two, episode three, episode four, episode five, episode six. And I was like, if you do that, you miss a huge twist in episode five where you find out Darth Vader is Luke's dad. And then I talked to this student in my youth group and he had, it was one of the coolest interpretations I've ever heard of watching Star Wars. He was like, Tristan, how do you watch Star Wars? And I was like, easy answer. Episode four, episode five, episode (laughs) six, then episode one, episode two, episode three. And he goes, wrong. And I was like, all right, here it comes. And he goes, you watch episode four, episode five. And I was like, oh, and he goes, then you go watch episode one, episode two, episode three, and then episode six. And his reason being is that four and five introduce Darth Vader, they show Luke Skywalker. And episode five ends with you finding out Darth Vader is Luke's dad, Anakin Skywalker. And then you go back and watch one, two, and three to see how Anakin becomes Darth Vader. And then you watch the last one. And I was like, that's really cool. It's like, I've never thought about it that way. That'd be an interesting way because you get the twist of finding out Darth Vader is Luke's dad. And then you get the backstory and then you see like how it all finally ends. But now there's episode seven, so I don't know like what all we do, like how that changes. But Mark does something really cool. And because of the sake of time, we're not gonna read the text, but I encourage you to like go on and read Mark chapter 14. Just read it through, because I wanna show you what Mark does. Mark says, so you know, this is how the Romans celebrate a new king, a new Caesar, a new son of God. So Mark goes, check this out. Jesus was brought to the Praetorium in Jerusalem and the whole company of soldiers, at least 200, gathered there. Soldiers brought Jesus a wreath of thorns, a scepter, an old stick, and a purple robe. It's important because he's saying there's like the symbol. It's not that it's like an actual scepter. He goes, sarcastically, the soldiers acclaimed, mocked, and paid homage to Jesus. The procession began, but instead of a bull, the would-be king and God became the sacrifice the bull but he could not carry the instrument of death and be the sacrifice so they stopped simon father of alexander and rufus who were later young believers at the church in rome and gave him the cross jesus was led to golgotha in aramaic golgotha is not precisely skull hill that's calvary to split hairs golgotha means head hill like the roman capitoline jesus was offered wine and he refused right after it's written they crucified him Next came the account of those being crucified on his right and left. The word for them, estes, means terrorist or insurrectionist. Jesus was again acclaimed, mocked, and a divine sign confirmed God's presence. The temple curtain ripped in two. In other accounts, the whole sky became darkened. Tombs burst open and the dead walked about. Finally, the Roman guard, who undoubtedly pledged allegiance to Caesar, the other son of God, was converted and acclaimed this man as the son of God. So in conclusion, as we mentioned, Mark is probably one of the earliest Gospels. The people that would have first been hearing Mark or reading Mark would still have been under Roman rule. The Romans were still a threat, still a thing. And Mark does this very cool. As he starts leading through the, pr- the procession, as people were hearing this, they would go, wait a minute. By step two or step three, they would say, Mark is claiming that not Caesar, but Jesus is the Son of God. That 
Not Caesar, but Jesus is the king. That our allegiance belongs not to Caesar, but to Jesus. And as he walks through these steps, he's saying, the Son of God is not who you think it is. He's saying there's this twist. Mark has this really cool agenda. Mark says there's more going on beneath the surface than you realize. There's something else going on here. And next week we're going to talk about the crucifixion. We're going to see the things that happen. But for me, I think so much of the ordeal, so much of the challenge of Jesus, and where maybe he even diverts from the hero's journey, is he takes the hero's journey on a different path. Whenever you watch any movie, if you're watching a romantic comedy, if you're watching like an action movie, whatever it is, the like hero wins in the end. In the romantic comedy, the couple that keep not being able to get together eventually get together. The, the action movie, whatever it is, like the bad guy that must be overcome or defeated, the, like, the star, the action star, like defeats and overcomes the bad guy. It doesn't end with like the good guy getting shot and the movie going to black. And when that does happen, occasionally we're pretty upset about it. Like we're annoyed, we're like, that's not what's supposed to happen. Like you have like a contractual agreement. I paid $10, you're supposed to give me a happy ending. And Mark says, here, you've paid me $10 and here's not your happy ending the good guy dies. You can see why the Jewish people were so upset. In fact, as I was reading the different accounts, one of the things that I found most interesting is that at one point, they take Jesus to Herod, take him to Pilate, and they say, this man says he's king of the Jews, which is what would get you killed. And what's so, what I realized was so interesting is they're so upset because that is what they want. They want Jesus to be a king of the Jews. They want him to overthrow Rome. And they're mad as hell that he's not doing it. That's why they're so frustrated. They're so mad that they're willing to kill him for not being the insurrectionist, by not being the Messiah that they want him to be. Because he's doing something different. He's doing something completely new, completely revolutionary. And this to me is one of the reasons why I find the gospel story so fascinating. It's because... It diverges from so many other stories in which the Messiah doesn't overthrow, doesn't overcome, but dies and dies like a humbling death. So to wrap up, I wanted to just share with you this uh, contemplative prayer I've been practicing this week. And uh, instead of practicing it today, I'm just going to share it with you. Um, And you can practice it as you want to this week if you want to. Uh, but the way this prayer works is, and you can uh, you find any word or phrase that you want. Um, the phrase that I use is this one. It's, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And the way it works is take four or five breaths, um, quiet down. It helps to sit maybe in like a desk chair. Close your eyes and breathe four or five times. And then on your in-breath, just to yourself, say, Lord Jesus. And on your out-breath, have mercy on me. Uh, one of my like, spiritual directors, one of my guides, practices this for 30 minutes in the morning when they first wake up and 30 minutes at night before they go to bed. And this is the routine of their day. Um, and the idea is not to focus on the words. There's a, an old Buddhist principle that um, in order to take, get rid of all the thorns, you must use one thorn. So the, the purpose of this prayer is, <coughs> is to realize how much chatter we have in our minds all the time, how anxious our minds are and how there's so much focus. And instead of trying to just achieve stillness by stillness, you're going to say, okay, I have all these thorns, all these thoughts. And instead of trying to get rid of all of these thoughts at once, I'm just going to use one thought to start getting rid of all of the other thoughts. It's been something that I've just started practicing, and 
And I'm not going to say like I've just discovered like revolutionary results. I'm not like this is incredible. Like I'm now completely enlightened. Um, I actually haven't noticed like any difference right now. But uh, but sometimes I think we're asked to trust the process on things. And uh, there's something that I I still find beneficial. And I wanted to like share it as a gift with you all. Um, but this is what we have for class. It's it's awesome getting to spend time with you. You guys are so cool. Um, but that's it. I hope you guys have an awesome week.